So I don't know how many of y'all, uh, where, where are my Verizon people at? Anybody? Y'all got Verizon? Anybody at all? What are you if you're not Verizon around here? Like, how does your cell phone work? Straight to, well, that's, that's still Verizon, sort of. Okay, okay. Oh, AT&T. Oh, okay. So we got a few not Verizon people in here. Well, I'm going to tell you all the reason you all ought to be Verizon people. I did not get paid for this commercial. Um, uh, if you get Verizon, I wasn't going to buy Disney Plus, but Verizon emailed me and they were like, hey, you get it for free. I'm like, no, I already paid you. You just paid Disney. So we got Disney Plus for free, and I, I walk in the other day, and Emily and Margaret are watching a movie that probably most of you have seen some version of. It's been remade a couple of times. Y'all ever seen The Parent Trap? Yes. Yes, y'all have. Some of y'all saw the original Parent Trap, and some of y'all saw the, the, the late 90s, early 2000s remake with, with the, the two Lindsay Lohans. Y'all saw that one. They're both essentially the same movie. Uh, but y'all, you remember the premise of the movie. If you don't remember the premise of the movie, I'm going to ruin all of it for you right now. Um, the, the movie is about two twins who were separated as infants. They don't even know they exist and they meet each other at summer camp and figure out that they're twins, but their parents were just going to keep their existence from each other for the entirety of their lives. Um, so they come up with this plan that they're going to get their parents back together so that they can they can be together so they swap places and go back to the opposite parent's house because neither of them have ever met the other parent well the girl who gets to her mom's house is just fantastic everything's great her mom's everything she ever imagined her to be and it's wonderful and oh this is fantastic and the other girl her dad's great his house is great there's just one little problem he don't found a lady and they're getting ready to get married. And he is convinced that this lady is the absolute best woman on the planet. She is clean cut. She's, she's pretty. She's smart. She's funny. She makes him laugh. She appears to just adore him, except when he's not in the room. It's very clear that she's out to get his money. And that's the only reason she wants to have anything that he is head over heels for her and she is head over heels for his bank account. And so the, re- the rest of the movie is not only are the, the twins trying to get their parents back together, they're trying to break this couple up. Um, so now it has become this, this twisted, convoluted drama that is almost as twisted and convoluted as the book of Genesis. But... Um, the point being, if you ever watch a, a suspense movie or a drama movie, the bad guy is never the one you think they are, right? It's never the one that, that, that looks like the bad guy from the get-go. It's always the one that's pretty and clean-cut and safe and nice and gentle, and little do you know that they're actually behind the scenes trying to rip everything to shreds. Well, that's exactly what you see in Revelation chapter 17. We're going to read the first six verses of it today, and you get to see the enemy revealed. You get to see one of the major players in the book of Revelation finally with their mask off, and you get to see them for what they actually are. Uh, So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, when the mask comes off. 
Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Father, I pray that you'd bless us to handle this uh, tastefully and accurately um, without going into excess, but also without pulling any punches, Lord, that you are warning us that there is an enemy out there who seeks our destruction. Um, and Lord, help us to see him for what he is. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right. Parents warning. I'm going to use the word harlot today because that's what the Bible says. That being said, I'm not going to be gratuitous. Um, I am going to use the language I can use without making parents uncomfortable while at the same time communicating what God said in His Word. You have been warned. Let's go. <laughs> so... Today we're looking at, okay, you say, well, wait a minute. I thought you said we were going to unmask one of the major players in Revelation, but I don't remember ever seeing this woman before. That's half, halfway the point. It's that she's been here the whole time, but she constantly looks like something else. She looks like someone else. She operates like something else. But what John sees is very literally a revelation of the truth about something. And today we're going to talk about the lie of false religion. False religion. Well, Josh, don't we talk about false religion every Sunday? We talk about it anytime we talk about believing something other than Jesus. Yes. But all false religion has a motivation. All false religion has a point. And all false religion comes from the, the, the same... All false religion flows from the same fountain. So that's what we're going to see today. And I want us to see three truths about false religion. The first being that it is purely transactional. I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 17. It says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment. Okay, so this makes sense. This is one of the angels who brings the seven bowls. The seven bowls are God's final judgments. On the earth. So, this is one of the angels who was directly involved in the pouring out of God's judgment on the earth. He says, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So, this word harlot probably don't really need to define it to you. You probably know what this word means. So, I'm not going to spend much time on that. But, I do want to talk about some of the other things surrounding the fact that this angel calls this character the great harlot. First off, it doesn't need to be interpreted literally. How do I know that this is not a literal person? Have you ever seen a literal person sitting on many waters? No. The idea is that this person is gigantic. Who are the many waters? Well, look at a map of the earth. What is it? Earth is covered by some 70-something percent of water. 
There have actually been uh, documentaries that call Earth the blue planet because the majority of our planet is, in fact, water. But, you know, when we say, you know, you know from, from sea to shining sea, you know, we're talking about it encompasses all of the land in between. Well, if this harlot is sitting on many waters, this means she's not geographically isolated. She's not ethnically isolated. This is a... This, Harlot is a symbol of something that exists the world over. Doesn't matter where you look, doesn't matter who you look at, she's got territory there. Okay? She's got, she's got some customers. Her direct customers are the kings of the earth. That they deal with her. And her indirect customers are the inhabitants of the earth. The, 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 kings, are, the kings are drinking with her and, they're, and, and, they're inhab- and their subjects are getting drunk. Her scope, she sits on many waters. She can't be contained or isolated to one nation, people, or culture. And her end, the angel says, is judgment. Now, all of this is revealed. This is, this is something that John would not have known if this angel had not shown him. One of the commentaries that, that I read every week when I prepare these sermons says, the trick to understanding Revelation is identification. You've got to know who is who. You've got to know what's what. You've got to know when is when. So when you see a symbol, if you're going to understand it, you've got to figure out what the symbol symbolizes. This is very clearly a symbol. She can't sit on many waters because no person can. So she's got to be symbolizing something. And I'm going to make the argument today that she symbolizes to you the ultimate form of false religion. This harlot is the ultimate form of false religion. And every other false religion is a child and lesser representation of this one. Now, how can I be sure of that, Josh? That seems like a leap. We haven't said anything religious at this point. John's just seeing this vision and nothing has been said about religion. Well, if you only look at the first six verses of Revelation 17, sure. Nothing's been said about religion. But if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll know that God routinely uses the word picture of harlotry King James has some, some more colorful words for a symbol of false religion and how it makes God feel. And the ultimate expression of this metaphor is in the book of Hosea. It's the ultimate way that God explains this. So there, you can just read the... Uh, please, go. Read the whole book of Hosea. We're doing the Minor Prophets on Sunday night. We're eventually going to get there. Okay, so if you want to if you want to come get Hosea preached through, come on Sunday nights. But I'm not going to go through the whole book of Hosea because I only have 31 minutes left. But Hosea chapter one, verse two, to to sum up the plot of the book for you, typically in, in the prophets, God comes to a prophet and he tells him what to say or occasionally tells him what to do. And usually when they he tells him what to do. It is to communicate visually a message that God is going to then explain verbally. So he comes to Hosea and tells Hosea to go and marry a harlot. Does that sound like a good idea to anybody here? Is that your first pick of a spouse? No. In fact, it's probably your last pick of a spouse. And yet, God tells Hosea to go and marry one. 
In Hosea 1-2, when the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry. How? By departing from the Lord. God said, You, Israel, in Hosea, are my people. I called you out. I loved you. I made you my own. I brought you out of Egypt back in Exodus. I gave you incredible kings like David, like Solomon. I gave you incredible prophets like Samuel, like Elijah. I gave you all these people. And yet, in every generation, every time some other false god walks in front of you, you just completely leave me and go off chasing after them. That you constantly leave me to chase after somebody else. So God, the best word picture he had. And by the way, y'all, this is inspired of God. Right? Down to its very words, letters, and grammar. Which means if God chose a particular word, he had a reason for it. If there was a better word, if there was a better way for God to express what His people were doing to Him, He would have used it because our God is perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. But He chose the word harlotry and that's what He said His people were doing. He said, you're leaving the one who is yours and and, and you are His and you are going after some other person, some other God. And God said, I, I want Israel to see this. Because they're going to look at you, Hosea, Mary Gomer. That's a whole other problem that she's named Gomer. I had never been able to figure that one out. But that's a whole other problem. Uh, they're going to see you, marry her, and go, this guy's crazy. Who would marry that? And God goes, me, apparently. I married you. And you're doing the same thing. And God uses this metaphor over and over and over throughout Scripture. And it stings, doesn't it? This is not chapter 1 of how to win friends and influence people. This is a a harsh metaphor. So the reason that, that God chooses this word is that in every era... This type of person has universal attributes. I'm going to share a few of them with you now and let you draw the connections. First, it reduces, a harlot reduces the intimacy and closeness of a marital relationship into a transactional relationship in which the sacred becomes an object of haggling and bartering. There is no pretense of an exclusive relationship based on faithfulness and love. Anyone has the ability to do business based on the willingness and ability to pay. And there is no such thing as a long-term view of the relationship. Transactions are isolated and impulsive. Just makes you feel just hearing it, doesn't it? God chose this word. Y'all, religious inclination, and I don't like using that. We say all the time Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, right? That's what, that's what we say. <laughs> We're going to get into that. But when I say religious inclination, I'm not talking about religion in the, 
in the pejorative sense. I'm not talking about the dead actions that we just kind of go through. When I say religious inclination right now, I mean this innate knowledge that we have that there's something bigger than us. This innate desire we have to reach out and touch touch the hand of the one that, that made us. Do you remember the Sistine Chapel? You've seen it, Michael and Joe. It's, it's goofy. It's almost kind of become a joke to some people, but it's an incredible piece of art where Adam's on earth and God's in heaven and Adam is reaching up to touch the finger of the God who made him. That's our nature in a nutshell, that we're down here and we know he's up there. And there is this desire in each of us that we want to be connected back to that. That we know we've lost something, we're disconnected from something, and we just want to reach out and touch it. That that's, that's part of us. That's built into us. It is a powerful human instinct because that's the way God made us. He made us to be in a close relationship with him. And that relationship with our Creator is the only suitable environment in which our religious inclination, our religious desire can be appropriately fulfilled. That you have this desire in you. You can press it down. You can suppress it. You can deny it. You can say what you want. But when you shut that out and you say, no, there's just me. There's just this life. When I die, that's it. It's over. There's no sequel That's done. That is the way down into depression, anxiety, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of hopelessness. And I'm not just telling you that Christianity is right because it's bad to feel that way. I'm telling you that you feel that way because you're denying a truth that is built into you. You are made in the image of someone bigger and you are made for something more than this world. C.S. Lewis said, if I can find in myself a desire which nothing on earth can satisfy, I can only conclude that I was not made for here. You possess a stomach because you need to eat, right? God gave you a stomach because you need food. You possess lungs because you need to breathe. God gave you lungs because you need oxygen. Well, if you have a desire and a need for the divine, that should at least perk you up to think, if God gave me a stomach because I need food, and He gave me lungs because I need oxygen, if I have this desire for God, if I have this desire for something bigger, that must be because there is something bigger that I was made to desire. Okay? So you've got this inclination in you, and it can only be appropriately fulfilled in a relationship with God. But religion, like other human instincts, can be cheapened, it can be twisted, and it can be misused by Satan to great effect. Satan knows that you have an innate desire to worship something. Like him or hate him, John Calvin described humans this way. He said our hearts are idol factories. Because we are made to worship. But ever since we sinned in the garden and we got broken, that desire to worship just gets transplanted onto whatever it is that we love at the time. And it doesn't get directed to the God it's supposed to be. The desire is still there, but the inclination is just misused. So Satan knows that we want to worship. We need to worship. We can't help but to worship. So Satan makes the high percentage play. 
He doesn't try and convince us not to worship. He just tries to convince us to worship something else. How do I know if I'm falling for this trick? Well, evaluate your relationship with your religion. Is it relational? Do you have an ongoing faith relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know Him personally? Do you know that He knows you personally? Do you walk with Him? Good? Bad? Do you feel encouraged by Him? Do you feel comforted by Him? Do you take things to Him that are not just, hey, I need you to do this for me. Hey, I want this. Hey, I did this. Or is it transactional? God, how did you let this happen to me? I wrote a check and put it in the offering plate. God, why did you let this happen to me? I was at church four times last month. God, why did you do this to me? I paid you. Maybe you feel like you paid him in money. Maybe you feel like you paid him in time. Maybe you feel like you paid him in effort. But that's not treating God like a spouse. That's treating him like something else. Entirely. But rather than just talking about fake Christianity, John is also talking about other fake religions, period. That other religions are transactional in nature. You do this, you get this. You pay this, you get this. I laughed. Did any of y'all see any of the clips of that documentary on Scientology that came out last year? It's absolutely hysterical. Do you want to know how to invent how to advance in the Scientological religion? You pay for the next book. I mean, seriously. And they totaled up like how much it costs to get to specific level. I mean, it's tens of thousands of dollars. Let me tell you a secret. And I like talking about money up here. But if one of y'all writes a check for $500,000 and drops it in the offering plate this week, I ain't getting paid one more cent at the end of this month. I'm not in this for the money. This church is not in this for the money. But I guarantee you, you walk down there to the Church of Scientology and you write a check for $500,000 and you drop it in their offering plate, somebody's having a very happy payday. Or maybe it's not your money. Maybe they have other things they want. I don't know, but there's, there's, there's this transactional nature to it. You do this, you get this. You do this, you get this. You do this, this doesn't happen. You do this, this doesn't happen. Y'all, Christianity is nothing transactional. Nobody in the world could have lived a better life than Jesus Christ. And He got crucified. Well, God, I did all this and I did this and this and this and this and this. Why did this bad thing happen to me? Well, Jesus never did a single thing wrong. He did enough righteousness to account for every human being that ever lived. And he got crucified. He got murdered for it. Our faith is not transactional. It's all about a relationship with our father. It's about the fact that he loved us first. He loved us into loving him. We didn't love him to start with. He loved us. 
And the idea that God would want or would need something from us, that we could pay him anything, is abjectly ridiculous. What do you have that, that God doesn't have more of better than? What could God possibly? Well, I gave God this much money. You ain't give God nothing. He gave you that in the first place. God doesn't need transactional relationships with us, but false religions are always transactional. Jeremiah 3, 23 and 24 says, Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of the mountains. That he says, there are all these other gods that you've been hoping for salvation from. You've been hoping for help from. You've been hoping if you pour yourself into that God one more time, if you give this to this God one more time, if you do this for this God one more time, maybe then this false religion will come through for you. Maybe your false religion is a little statue. Maybe your false religion is gold. Maybe your false religion is your bank account. Maybe your false religion is your kids. Maybe your false religion is whatever. Maybe your false your false religion can be anything that you have poured your life into that you're hoping will give you purpose, meaning, hope. If it's not Jesus, it's a fake. And it will take your payment every day. And listen to what happened. Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. That the cost is high and the payout is nil. You can give everything to a false religion you want and it will give nothing back. And look at the cost. Flocks and herds, but church. Sons. Daughters. Our children. Devotion to false religions doesn't just destroy you. It destroys your kids. Your grandkids. It's not just you. False religion promises fulfillment and success while robbing you of a relationship with your creator and propelling you towards your own self-destruction. False religion is transactional. Second, I want you to see that false religion is deceptively alluring. So look at verse 3. So this angel carries John away into the wilderness and John sees a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So, so this harlot is now portrayed as being paired with descriptions both of beauty and seductiveness, but also horror and filth. So some of the descriptions of beauty. Look at this. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet. So you're like, okay, purple. No big deal. I can buy a purple shirt at Old Navy. It's not that big of a deal. Scarlet? I can have scarlet at Old Navy too. I get scarlet at Walmart. It doesn't matter. The ancient world's a little bit different. Because the dye that they used to make... Purple, or, or, or the way that they made purple dye and the way that they made scarlet dye was extremely time-consuming, labor-intensive. It took a long time. The purple dye was made from little tiny shellfish that they had to crush them and, and grind them up. And there was specific pigments in their, their shells and things like that. So 
Explain to me, church, you know basic economics. When something is difficult to do, specialized, and and is time intensive, what is it also? Woo, it's expensive. Purple was expensive and scarlet was expensive. Purple was so expensive that typically only royals wore it. That it was hard to get the stuff. Scarlet, less so than purple, but still extremely expensive. Purple royalty, scarlet, high class. She's dressed in purple and scarlet. She's adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls. That really needs no explanation. Y'all know, y'all know how expensive gold is. Y'all know how expensive precious stones are. I'll tell you this story. Emily and I, we were on vacation, which, by the way, thank y'all for letting us go on vacation. We very much enjoyed it. We decided that we were going to just walk around uh, downtown, uh, downtown uh, Asheville and just kind of see what they had there. I mean, literally all we did on our vacation was eat. Which was perfect. That's the way we planned it. Um, but we decided we were gonna. We wanted to go around and look at all the things that we weren't, could not buy. And so we're walking around this little place called the the Asheville. I think it's called the Gallery or something. The Arcade, not with like the video games, but like the shopping area. So we're walking around this arcade, and there's this uh, there's this old school shaving supply store, which is hog heaven for me, right next to. This jewelry store, which isn't hog heaven for anybody, but it's fun to look at. So we walked in there, and Emily asked this question. She says, well, uh, show me the birthstones. I says, well, I'll show you most of them. So she goes and looks, and we're looking, and they're real birthstones, okay? Um, So Emily goes, well, what about the ruby? And he goes, hold on. And he walks in the back. And brings out this little box. And it's literally just the stone. And he opens it up and it's like a half a carat, three quarters of a carat, and something like that. And we said, it's pretty. How much is that? He said, 15. I said, 100? <coughs> no, 1,000. It's 15,000. Okay. <laughs> you do you, boo-boo. I'm not buying it. I, I got to put food on the table. <laughs> We're not going to buy a $15,000 rock. <laughs> that's, I mean, really, y'all, that's what it is. Okay? It's, it's a rock. But it's a very pretty, very expensive rock. The idea is she ain't got one of these. She's got a lot. Arrayed, adorned with gold, precious stones, pearls. And she carries her, her, her silverware. Her tableware is made of gold, which I guess it's goldware. But her cup is made out of gold. But that's not the only description. She's also sitting on a disgusting, multi-headed, horned beast. Now, we've already seen this beast once before. This is a symbol of Antichrist. 
This is a description of who he is and how he operates. I'm not going to spend much time on the beast because as we keep going forward in chapter 17, we're going to hear a lot more about this thing. But suffice to say that this beast is a symbol not just of Antichrist, but it is also a symbol of his worldly government. And I'm going to take a side on a side right here and tell you another, or another way to identify false religion. False religion always gets really, really buddy-buddy with earthly government that gives it power. It always does it. It always has. So anytime you see religion doing its best to intertwine itself with the way a government operates, that should set off bells and sirens. I'm not saying let's not look for and, and desire Christian leaders. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I'm thinking back to the medieval period where the government was the Catholic Church. I'm saying when you look at something like ISIS right now, where the religion is the government, when religion starts to desire governmental power, that's a tip-off for you. This is not of God. Because Jesus just said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, actually, he said, now my kingdom is not of this world. You will know when Christianity has become the government because Jesus will be leading it. Prior to that point... His kingdom is not of this world. So that's just an aside. Okay. Um, she's sitting on this disgusting multi-headed horned beast. And look inside her cup. What's in the cup? Abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Idolatry is in this cup. Abomination is actually a word that, that can mean idol. It's a negative term for idolatry. But the idea is that she looks beautiful. She's wearing nice clothes. She's wearing jewelry. Look at, she's got just gold everywhere. Jewels everywhere. Pearls everywhere. Even the cup she's drinking out of is gold. Don't you want some of this wealth? Don't you want some of this goodness? Look, here, I'll share my cup with you. And then you look in it and it's filth. That it's all designed to make something disgusting and wicked and evil look desirable. Here's why. A harlot provides nothing of real value. Anything a harlot provides is illusory. It's an illusion, but it has a real cost. So how does anybody with this business model... Offering nothing for something succeed. You're offering nothing for something. It blows my mind. And I, I debated whether or not to say this. But I, I will. When I met Emily, one of the ways that I knew I had found God's gift to me was I walked into her apartment and saw a Super Nintendo hooked up to the television. <laughs> And I nearly out passed out. Once I came to, I said, will you marry me? No. <laughs> Emily and I enjoy playing Nintendo. <laughs> Hate me or not, but we do. She's better than me. That's okay. 
But we laugh sometimes because there are these things in, in games today that didn't used to exist called loot boxes. You buy the game. You spend however much on the game. We don't have any like this, but you spend however much on the game. You buy the full price for the game. But then there are items in the game that you can buy. Not with game money, but with real money. And sometimes they don't even do anything. They just take your little person and put him in a new outfit. And you can only get this outfit this month. How much is it? It's $9.99. And I just laugh. I'm like, they paid $10 for nothing. Literally nothing. There's not a physical good. There's not. Maybe, maybe. You could make this argument if it actually helped you in the game. But it doesn't even do that. It just makes the game look different. And I'm like, it doesn't make sense to me that people would spend real money for fake stuff. And yet, it's a billion dollar industry. People are more than willing to spend real money on nothing. She's perfected it. The customer has got to be convinced that the product is real and is harmless, enjoyable, and beneficial. But it's not. So what does that mean the seller has to do? Lie. The seller has to lie. So what does the harlot do? She clothes herself in purple, scarlet, gold, silver, jewels, pearls, all to make a relationship with her look harmless, enjoyable, and beneficial. But she's not yours. She was never yours. She cares nothing about you. You're just a customer. And once she's taking your money, you mean nothing. Once she's taking what she wants, you mean nothing. False religion functions identically. Religion, outwardly, is purely the form our relationship with God takes. The actual relationship is what we desire. Okay, we're not here today. Like, if you look at your bulletin, we have a certain way that we do things every week, right? Like, it's very predictable. We show up, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing. Okay, we show up. Joyce plays. I walk around. I shake hands. I tell people hello, and then I slowly meander my way up to the front if I'm paying attention to my clock. And I sit down, and Mark comes up. He leads a call to worship. I come up. I pray. I sit down. Mark leads a call to worship. Sometimes Mark does special music. After the second hymn, I come up. I preach. We have an invitation. Then we do the offering. And then I give the announcements. And then we leave. Right? We have a specific kind of scripted way we go, we go through things. Now, how many of you, that structure, that's what you really desire and need more of in your life? Probably the structure is a good thing, but you're not here today for that structure. You're here today, hopefully, for your relationship with Jesus. That relationship is actually what you desire. This structure is just kind of the outward expression of how we pursue that. Correct? Okay. And different people can structure it different ways, and that's okay, provided that they are looking for that relationship with Jesus. All right? Satan knows that we're built for this relationship with God. He can't change that. So the next best thing is to twist that design. False religion offers elaborate form, extravagance, structure, 
without offering any true relationship with God. Nothing. Y'all, false religion can be beautiful. Structurally, physically. Have y'all ever looked at just the architecture of a Hindu temple? Have you? I mean, honestly, try and look at it purely architecturally without attaching any religion to it whatsoever. The architecture is beautiful. The one time I was in Morocco, one of the most beautiful buildings I ever saw was a mosque. Architecturally, it was gorgeous. I mean, the floors were stonework. They had patterns all over, all over them. The walls had patterns over them. The Arabic script, I have no idea what it said. But it was, it was artistically, it was beautiful. And I have never felt, some, I've never felt so dark and hopeless as I did standing in that place. They wouldn't even let me go in the rest of the way, by the way. I was just like peeking in the outside. I'd never seen a mosque. So we were on kind of a tour of the town. And I just kind of looked in. They were happy to let me just kind of look in, but no, you don't get to go any further. Well, that's fine, I don't want to. It's dark enough right here. But arti- artistically, it was beautiful. But offered nothing. Offered nothing. Satan has little care for whatever form your false religion takes. It doesn't matter. They all seem helpful, enjoyable, and beneficial to different people. But the goal is to keep you from a real relationship with a real God. doesn't matter how he does it. Entering the presence of Pope Innocent II, before whom a large sum of money was spread out, the Pope observed, See? The church is no longer in that age in which she said, silver and gold have I none. True Holy Father, replied Thomas Aquinas, but neither can she any longer say to the lame, rise up and walk. You remember the beginning of Acts when Peter sees the man laying on the the floor and he sees him and he calls out and he expects he's going to get alms and Peter says to him, silver and gold we have not, but what we do have we offer you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise and walk. And the lame man stands up and walks. And the Pope looks at Thomas Aquinas and says, See, I can't say what Peter used to say. Peter had to say, We don't have any silver. We don't have any gold. But we, don't, we can't say that anymore, Thomas. We got it now. And Thomas said, Yeah, but you know what else you can't say? You can't say get up and walk either. False religion. Opulent. Beautiful. Wealthy. Empty. It's got to seduce you. It's got to trick you. So without need of any explanation, I want to read to you a, a, a section from Proverbs where Solomon, who would have done a lot better if he'd taken his own advice, says, starting in verse 6, Through the window of my house, I looked through my lattice, I looked... Uh, I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner. And he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. 
She caught him and kissed him and with an impudent face said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I've paid my vows. So I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face and I've found you. I spread my bed with tapestry, covered linen, covered colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love for my husband is not at home. Rut-row, Batman. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. That's what God say harlots do, and that's what Revelation says false religion is at its core. Its way is the way to hell, and her house is the chambers of death. Oh, I'm not standing up here telling you the truth because it's always fun. I'm standing up here telling you the truth because I don't want you to die and go to hell. Okay? Listen, if I, if I, could, if I could preach a different sermon here, I would. But a slave doesn't get to make the calls on what the master says. That's what he's warning you against. And then finally, briefly, false religion is ultimately exposed. Verse 5, John says on her forehead a name was written. Now it says mystery. There is some debate over whether mystery was part of what's written on her forehead or whether mystery is an explanation of what's happened or of what's written on her forehead. And by the way, you might say, why in the world are they writing anything on her forehead? Well, Roman courtesans actually wore headbands with their names on them. So you could actually tell who, who, who was who. So this is very, it fits the, the image that God is using. So mystery, don't know if it's part of the written name or if it's an explanation of the rest of the written name. Um, the Greek word mysterion doesn't necessarily mean something that's unknown. When you read a mystery novel or you see a mystery, or you see a mystery movie or you read a mystery book, the idea is there's something you don't know. The Greek word mystery doesn't mean something you don't know. It means something you could not know unless it were revealed to you. Okay? So the gospel to us in the Greek sense is still a mystery. Now we know what it is, but it's something that we could not have known unless God showed us. Right? Does that make sense? So mystery, this is the literal revelation of John learning something about false religion that he did not know before. She is identified as Babylon the Great, and she is the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. This final false religion is revealed to be nothing more than the original false, humanistic, violent, depraved religion that you find back in Genesis. If you remember back, God told humanity to, to fill the earth, subdue it, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the whole earth with his image. 
And in the original city of Babel, they said, no, we don't want to scatter throughout the whole earth. We want to build a city and a tower and make a name for ourselves and make our name great. And we're going to build a tower that gets the he- that, whose top is in the heavens. We don't need God to get back to heaven. We deserve to be there and we're going to get there on our own because we got bricks and we can build our way there. We don't need his help. The first false religion of Babel. Self-sufficiency. We can do it on our own. We don't need God. This is that. And John sees her with this name written across her forehead and she's drunk with the blood of Christians and he's shocked. So don't forget that the harlot relies on deception. Her garments and accessories are meant to make you overlook the death that she actually is. But John finally sees her for what she is. She's an ancient human scourge that isn't harmless, enjoyable, and beneficial. She's violent, selfish, and godless. She revels in the destruction of Christians and has no problem allying herself with a wicked state to accomplish her goals. And John was stunned to see her for what he was, but this angel showing him these things, now I'm going to skip one verse ahead, this is part of next week, but in verse 7 the angel says, why did you marvel? John, why are you surprised? This is not new information. She's always been this, but for some reason John did not see it. So what does this mean for us? Y'all, Christians, let me tell you, one of our greatest advantages, we don't have any hidden knowledge. We don't have any hidden knowledge. What do I mean by that? Y'all, there are two rooms in this church that stay locked. Two. That office right over there, because it contains giving information, and the only, it's only a secret from me. Any secret information is in there is in there because y'all put it in there. It's not because we put it in there to keep it from y'all. Okay? That room stays locked to protect your giving records. And the cleaning closet down there in the hall because it has chemicals in it. Okay? That's it. That's to protect the kids. Those are the only two locked rooms in the building. My office is locked one week of the year, and that's during vacation Bible school when Susan puts a VBS offering in there until they can count it. There ain't nothing in this church that's hidden. Well, if you advance far enough in the faith, you'll know what they believe. Whoop, you know what we believe right now. It's right there. It's not secret. You're never going to get deep enough into Christianity. You're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea Christians believe this. We've been yelling it for 2,000 years. There's nothing secret about it. You ever been in one of them buildings a Mormons call church? I was in college, and I'll keep the story brief because I I do have a clock. When I was in college, uh, I marched on an indoor competitive drum line because I was apparently crazy. And we typically practiced in a middle school gym on the the basketball court. So yes, hours on end with earplugs in because we're playing drums in a middle school gym. It was real, I promise. But that middle school one weekend had, a, had an event. So we couldn't be in there. So we were trying to figure out where to go to practice. Well, I'm just one of the little peons. I don't know what's going on. I just kind of go where they tell me to go and hit things. Well, I did not know it until we pulled up, but one of the staff members of our drumline was apparently a member of an LDS church. And their church had a gym. 
So he volunteered it, and the rest of the staff took him up on it. So here I am playing drums in a Mormon church. I'd never been in one before. So, curious Baptist, I'm going to go look around. And it was eerie, because you go in the front door, right? You go in the front door, and all of the pictures you see, you would recognize they look like Sunday school pictures. They look like little pictures that are in the Sunday school books. You know, it's the painting. Of, and they're Bible stories you recognize. And all the rooms in the front are normal. I mean, like bathrooms, offices, whatever. But then it was kind of like a square around the gym. And I kept walking around. And as soon as you get around to the back door, you start seeing pictures from stories that you don't recognize. And they're all from the Book of Mormon. I'm like, why'd y'all put these in the back? How come y'all didn't put them up in the front? Are y'all not proud of it? Y'all afraid it might scare somebody off? You want to you get folks in with the comfortable stuff and then slowly graduate them to the things that you know they're not going to accept when they see them? But the creepiest thing, the creepiest thing, and it didn't just creep me out, it creeped other people out. There's this door to the side that was, it had a sign by it that said the mother's room. It was not just locked, it was dead bolted. Y'all, why do you deadbolt a room in a building? Now, maybe there's a purely innocent, non-theological, inane explanation of why that room exists. I don't know. I'm just curious Baptist. I just know it freaks me out when I see a deadbolted room inside a place of worship that there's not a good explanation for. I also know the Mormon church You can't go far enough inside the temple if you're not a Mormon. They won't let you. Certain things they won't tell you until you get far enough in. Why? Why hide it? Why hide it? Why keep secrets about what you believe? For false religions, there will come a day when their inconsistencies are laid bare, when their violence is made known, and when they're exposed. Christians, we have no fear of being exposed. We are what we've always been. We are what Jesus has always told us to be. We, all, we have held to the same things that he told us 2,000 years ago. We're not adding anything to it. We're not taking anything from it. We are who we are, and we're waiting for him to come lead us. That's it. Matthew 24, 23 through 27. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ. Or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms or the mother's room. Do not believe it. As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. There won't be any secrets. Everybody will know. Matthew 10, 25 and 26. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house bills above, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. There's nothing covered that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak it in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetops. There's no such thing as secret Christianity. There's nothing left to be revealed about us. We are who we are. We are what we profess to be. And if somebody expresses it incorrectly, that's not a reflection on Christianity as a whole, by the way. Christianity has no secret doctrine. 
We have no secret beliefs. 